Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. Hello and welcome to the PR Week, PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. My name's Steve Barrett. I'm the Editorial Director of PR Week. I'm going to guide you through the next 25, 30 minutes of our weekly show with a fantastic guest this week. We've got Anna Maria DeSalva, who's Global Chair and CEO of Hill & Norton Strategies. Anna Maria, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thank you, Steve. I'm doing well. I'm even more excited to be here after that introduction. I know. It, does, <laughs> it takes people by surprise. And this is your first podcast, I it believe. Is, it is. We are very honored that you've chosen to share that with us. So looking forward to it. Frank Washcook's here. How are you doing, Frank? Doing Executive well. Editor of PR Week. Thank you for that uh, gracious introduction. But more importantly this week, Frank, marathon runner. Are you uh, all set for Sunday? Uh, yes, as much as I'm going to be, yeah. Do you start a dietary regime? and? Uh, well, I do, of, actually. So like when I, when I do... Bulking up on pasta and stuff? When... I don't know about that. Uh, <laughs> when I do formal marathon training, I eat a lot of like chicken and rice for lunch every yeah. day, as you've noticed. Uh, That's a fairly and, regular uh, thing, though, isn't it? it is, well, it well, is, but more so now. Right. And I, uh, I watch some other stuff, and I try to eat reasonable portions, which is a challenge for me. So, uh, <laughs> and you <laughs> so, don't go uh, out so, yeah. drinking? Uh, no. Okay. Well, who was that I was out with last night, then? Well, don't, no, no, don't tell just, us. Uh, don't, don't, don't tell us. Not a lot, anyway. Yeah. Okay. So. Well, we wish you luck with that. That's fantastic. I'm going to be watching. So I'll wave if I see you. Yes. Uh, I shall be in Brooklyn on the route, and uh, I will uh, give you a wave. And our former colleague is also doing it. Is Oh, no, he's not doing it. Gary McLaughlin. Well, he's not he's, running it, but he's working he's it for, for Roadrunners. Road yeah, he works for New York Roadrunners. And it's actually, it's a really long day for the people that work there yeah. because they go from the early morning well into the evening. So it's uh, it's not all fun for those guys. And what are we aiming for time-wise? So we're aiming for under four this time. Okay. Uh, I was aiming for well under four last time, and I finished uh, a bit over four, <laughs> shall we say. Uh, but this time I think I've got it. So knock on wood, uh, we're going to try to get in it. 359.59 would be perfectly fine for me. So. <laughs> we totally we will tweet about yeah. that on yeah. Sunday. Yeah. Wish you Thank all you. the best. Fantastic thing to do. Uh, so we'll chat to Anna Maria, and then we'll chat, chat about some topical issues. We've got a story from Xerox about them building a, building out their storytelling team. Some changes over at DeVries and Weber this week, and uh, and the, an IPG win for Covered uh, California. Um, there's a Salesforce review going on and uh, a story about media pitches. Only one and a half percent of them are successful. So we'll find out why that is and if indeed it rings true, because, you know, not all research is necessarily 100 percent true. But we'll chat about that. But let's start with you, Anna Maria. You've been in post over 100 days. So I guess you've done your initial review and scope of the job and the role. Tell us all about what you've spent the, that time doing and what, what, are you, what are your findings and, and how you're going to sort of move from here. That's great. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, so first 100 days was uh, really kind of exceptional because of, on the one hand, the uh, diversity of the company, the scope of the network, the diversity of the clients, um, how international we are. You've you been know, on a so, plane a lot. Yeah. yeah, so there's yeah. a there's a there's a lot to touch. There's a lot to explore. Um, and really, what I tried to prioritize was 
a lot of listening, you know, so I started over the summer months and in a way that was a little bit of a blessing because that gave me a chance to spend time, especially here in the U.S. Um, with our teams. I sat down with clients at, at great length and, and just really invited people to tell me what was on their minds. I uh, solicited input. I, I did the classic, you know, I distributed about seven core questions to our U.S. managing directors and then to our entire Global Leadership Council. And they treated me very candidly, which was terrific to really, you know, mine and understand what our leaders feel are the strengths and weaknesses of the firm and what their vision, what, what their what their aspirations are, what their sense of urgency is in terms of our future. Um, and so uh, that was, you know, also I think a couple of weeks where I was getting to know people and doing a lot of town halls and. Um, you know, just really spending uh, the time face-to-face -face for which there is no substitute. Yeah. Uh, we also needed to get into a bit of a cadence around strategic planning at mid-year, you know, starting to think about 2020, but also really starting to think about a multi-year growth strategy for Hill & Knowlton, which I find very exciting. You know, and so just starting to, through those conversations and, and through that exploration process, really zeroing in on what our opportunities are, um, where we're starting from in terms of our strengths, uh, what we see in the future. Um, and then through those conversations, starting to zero, zero in on a couple of strategic principles. And we were together as a global leadership team in Amsterdam uh, at the beginning of the month or very end of September, very early October. And we had a couple of focus sessions on that. And then, you know, I went away and I actually wrote a, a short paper myself on what I thought I'd heard and how it's beginning to come together in my head. And I brought a group together to interrogate that a little bit more. You know, so I think that's been uh, a very worthwhile process. And, and I think we'll be able to move more quickly because we've taken that that kind of time together. Yeah. And um, you made a couple of moves already in terms of the global leadership. Um, Richard Miller, who uh, ran uh, the UK business, is going to come over to the States, I think. And he's, he's taken over running the US as well. And then Lars Eric has uh, taken over Europe and Asia. Tell us about that and what the thinking is behind those two moves. Because I guess Hill & Knoll is an iconic name, iconic agency. It was one, you know, with Burson, with the two biggest firms in the world 20, 25 years ago. Has had harder times since then, but it, especially in the States. But in Europe and Asia, it's kind of been doing well, hasn't it? So was that a reward for, the, for those efforts? I think it was not really a reward. It was really just a good business decision, you know. So I think that uh, we're, we're fortunate that we have in Richard and Lars Eric two strong senior operators who really know the company very well, who've been involved in a lot of the growth and innovation across the company. Um, in, in Richard's case, because he's had a very broad client remit, he knows many of our U.S. clients and he's familiar with the U.S. business. And he has just a terrific track record of having built an incredibly vibrant business in the, in the, in the UK. Uh, I spent four days in London uh, at the beginning of this month, and I, I you know, practically didn't want to leave. It was just, it, it just really engaging, really interesting, great portfolio, great team. Um, reviewing the work was maybe even the most interesting thing. You know, so uh, I, I really think that when you put together that experience with all of the possibilities we have in the U.S. market, um, there's just a, a all upside as far as I'm concerned, you know. So, and of course, we're going to partner together very closely. I have a, as you know, a rich network in the U.S., mm -hmm. and um, I, I certainly intend to tap into that and and really focus also on talent. It's a talent business, and I think sometimes we talk about innovation in terms of what we bring to clients, which is so important. 
but I also really want to innovate in terms of talent and building the talent pipeline and being a true destination for the talent in our industry. Yep, and um, you've had the benefit of working on the client side as well, and pretty incredible a couple of years before you came to Illinois because you were at uh, DuPont, weren't you? Tell us about that and what you learned from going through that process. It was kind of a bunch of mergers, breakups, <laughs> going public. It was, it was a crazy time, but it must have been exciting. Very exciting, you know, and, um, you know, I was at, uh, as we were discussing earlier yesterday, I was at United Health Group in, in Minnesota at their annual uh, communications conference, and Kirsten Gorsuch hosted a panel that included. She's the head of comms over there. Yeah, yeah head of comms at United Healthcare, and Kirsten um, asked uh, David Sampson, um, David. Um, from Chevron. From Chevron. Dave Sampson from Chevron, David uh, Palombi from now U.S. Bank, formerly at CBS. And me to you know do like a 90-minute panel on our careers and the roles of communications and growth, and I was reflecting on the last decade, you know, and, and thinking about the quote that uh, we we have to live life looking forward, but we really only understand it looking backward, you know. And when I look back on the last decade of my client work, I, it, it I really do understand how it was preparing me, you know, to, to take a larger role and to really. Um, uh, I think take on the, the the future, really, you know, unlocking the future and the potential of an organization like Hill and Knowlton. So it, it was tremendous transformation work, both at Pfizer and at DuPont. And at Pfizer, uh, I spent five years, you know, starting with the integration of Wyeth, $65 billion um, acquisition, at the time the biggest merger in that sector's history. Um, very disruptive, you know, a lot of cost synergies had to be realized, but also a whole new innovation model had to be hatched. Wall Street had to be won over. Um, hearts and minds had to be, you know, yeah. really also um, won within the company because certainly in that sector, lots of um, change fatigue. But we were, I think, even more successful than we expected. And, and you know, one of the pharmaceutical trades um, recently did a retrospective on the Pfizer R&D turnaround. And when I read it, I just, I could barely, hardly believe it because I was just remembering all those hard yards in the early days of that turnaround and how difficult it was. But, you know, how incredibly rewarding to see at the five-year mark and then at the 10-year mark how, how much value it created and how, yeah. good, how, how good it was for patients and for Did you work, you work with Sally Sussman when... I did, yeah. yes. Sally hired me and brought me into um, Pfizer. And, uh, you know, she she's had an extraordinary career in general, but she's just been just an incredible enterprise leader at Pfizer. Yeah. And she's courageous, and she encouraged all of us to be courageous. Uh, you know, so that, that made it, you know, in some respects easy to really step up and play a large principal role in a major transformation like that. Um, you know, and, and so that was a very... It was a very logical transition in certain respects to go to DuPont because DuPont was also undergoing transformation. Ellen Coleman was leading a really bold transformation of the company, and she knew the communication piece was sort of lagging, and yet, you know, how can you do transformation successfully and not have strong communication? So that was very appealing to me to uh, become the global chief communicator there, working with her on the transformation, but there was also a risk with activist um, with an activist investor who wanted to break the company up. And that activist activated, and we went into a full-on proxy battle. Uh, the year 2015 took it all the way to a shareholder vote, won the shareholder vote. Um, but, you know, those are very disruptive events, very difficult events. And I think that, you know, after that vote, 
um, Ellen and the board had, I think, different views of the future, and uh, she decided to step down. Ed Breen became our chair and CEO, and um, Ed's a storied leader, you know, with just a tremendous track record, both building companies organically, like he did at General Instruments, and then sold it to Motorola, and then um, restoring, saving Tyco from bankruptcy over a period of five years, and then breaking up that conglomerate over a period of the following five years and creating extraordinary shareholder returns as a result of that whole exercise. So I think everyone um, was fearful of that transition. Um, but uh, you know, we did it the old-fashioned way. We just really worked really hard and developed a real cadence of communication with employees. Uh, treated them like adults. We were pretty transparent. And uh, of course, he led us into the merger with Dow, mega merger with Dow. It's been called the most complex corporate transaction in history. Yeah, it was pretty. We had um, head of comms at Dow on a couple of years ago, and he was talking about that process. Yeah, it was it was a crazy time, it, wasn't it? It was it was incredible, you know. So, so to see that that in short order that that also has been um, successful, and that the, the three new publicly traded companies for which the merger was designed, you know, they've been hatched, they're in the market, they're competing, um, they're innovating, you know, and, and yeah. they, you know, we'll see how, how that uh, bears fruit over time. But I, I was really glad I stuck with it. You know, I'm still working with them. I was just with Ed this morning at DuPont Earnings, you know, so. Great. So you're still, uh, they're a client now? Or were they? They're, or were they technically, they're, they're, they're my client. Okay, <laughs> cool. Um, how important is that relationship with the CEO? Um, we talk about it a lot, and some, some CCOs won't take a job unless they report directly into the CEO. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, CEOs leave, and you've got to forge a relationship with a new one. So how did you find that dynamic? I think it's, yeah, I think it's incredibly important um, for, you know, for sure. The reporting relationship, I think, can, can be a little fluid. The most important thing is access and partnership, you know. So sometimes in the really, really, really big companies, it's just administratively better sometimes to have some of the smaller functions not necessarily report directly to the CEO. Uh, and I think that many, most of us, you know, would still kind of object to that, you know, on the, on the grounds of principle, but it can work. Uh, as long as the CCO and the CEO are closely connected, there's an open door, and whoever is in between is not interested in trying to broker that relationship. Yeah. You know, so, so, but, uh, yeah. So it's less I mean, about the organizational structure and more about the personal relationships in, within the team. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and you just really have to feel, I think I always felt, both with Ellen and with Ed, that we were always, you know, solving for the same thing, that we were, we were you know, always... Uh, we, we might have different ideas about the solution, but we were, you know, earnestly engaged with each other in uh, in 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 addressing the challenge and, and and solving for the right outcome. Yeah, and finally, if you look at the top ten agencies now, um, many more women running them. You know, mm. look at Weber, look mm -hmm. at Ketchum, um, look at MSL, look at Hill and Knowlton. Um, it, it, do we obsess over that too much, or is that a really positive sign that finally women are taking those most senior roles? Uh, you know, it's a seventy percent female profession. What's your take on that? Sure. Well, y yes. I mean, it, it's a it's an absolutely great thing from the standpoint that the people who who are qualified and can lead should have the opportunity to lead, and that benefits everyone when there are no constraints in terms of which talent 
ultimately emerge uh, in the most senior positions. Uh, you know, I don't think it's a representation issue. I don't think it's like we've got 70% women and therefore there should be, a, you know, a female CEO necessarily. But uh, by all means, we've taken huge steps forward and we, there's more to do. I think that we have to really um, understand the reasons why women attrit across the leadership pipeline. And it's easy to be optimistic, and I'm very optimistic because I see so many incredible women in so many industries at different levels doing extraordinary things, and they're very talented. And I see both men and women supporting them. So you look at that and you think, how can you not be optimistic? Um, but then when you look at the data, you see that women are still... Still a salary gap. There's, right. Yeah. And and too many of them, you know, there are a lot of them at the beginning of the pipeline. And then as you progress, there are fewer and mm -hmm. fewer and fewer. Um, you know, so I think there's been some good work on that recently. And, uh, you know, Paradigm for Parity is a coalition. I kind of admire what they've done because they've rolled up their sleeves and they've looked at the, what the reasons are. And they've developed an action plan, you know, that anyone can read and follow and, and figure out how to... Uh, how to improve performance in that yeah. respect. And I forgot Burson Conan Wolf. How could I forget Donna Imparato? So yeah. isn't that, that's yet another top uh, 10 agency female leader. So, yeah, great stuff. Well, uh, we wish you continued good fortune and uh, on your journey there and look forward to seeing how you, uh, how you uh, plan out that strategy over the next 12 months. Um, Frank, let's get on to some topical subjects. Xerox has... Um, built out its storytelling team. Tell us all about that. Yeah, this is a really cool initiative by Xerox, which, um, and it's, it's been helmed by uh, Anne-Marie Squale, who uh, it's, it's one of our first priorities since joining there. And she's a former journalist at the Wall Street Journal, and she's hiring other former journalists to essentially uh, create unique ways of telling the company's story. And, you know, a lot of Xerox, what they do is, is B2B, like heavy technology, things like that. And I think it's a really interesting way of getting across what the company actually does. So one thing they did recently uh, was this initiative about whether a tennis ball is green or yellow, which I have to admit I never actually thought about before. It's yellow in a greeny way. It's a shade of green, is it? I believe, <laughs> yes. So, but anyway, they walk you through why that's the case, and it goes all the way back to the advent of color and television. Of course, they're all about color, aren't they? Right. Xerox is all about And color. it goes all the way back to color television and when it started, and before that, tennis balls were white, but they wouldn't show up well on TV. Got it. So you learn something new well, from their yeah, storytelling That's unit. where brand content can be really yeah. interesting, right? You know, it doesn't have to be dull stuff and you know Xerox making it making it interesting Anna Maria we hear a lot about brands in housing functions and content first of all it's nice to see some journalists getting jobs isn't sure. it? uh, <laughs> it's a tough time for us journos um, but you know more and more brands are taking that content function in-house how are you finding that are you still supporting a lot of clients with content services are you seeing more of them take take that in-house oh you know we absolutely are still supporting them and, and and that's still a key growth area so i think i think it will be a blend you know and i think that some companies will experiment with it and do very well with it and you know and others will prefer to keep that as a variable cost that they can dial up or down you know so i i, I just think that we can never assume that the pendulum is going to swing all the way in one direction. 
and sometimes you know it swings back as well uh you know for, for those who, who take on that model and then they unwind it you know at a yeah, later yeah. date depending on what's going on at the company yes so that's true we Nothing have to stays forever does it <laughs> maintain our agility and really and really you know continued strength in that area and i can just imagine what it must be like to be an accomplished journalist you know, leading communications at Xerox and, you know, the overwhelming opportunity to use storytelling, um, you know, as a way to, to have really have a communications breakthrough. I think that's a pretty neat idea. Yeah, it is. And I mean, you guys used to have Group SJR, but I think one of the things Richard did was actually bring that content and creativity into, into London. And I'm guessing he's extended that and he's going to extend that into other parts of the business as well yeah. oh yeah yeah uh so so the creativity and innovation centers which include you know content and, and publishing capabilities are growing in different regions of the world now so you know we, we have it here in new york we have a fabulous team here in new york um who have really come together within the last year and are adding so much to our business but also i think to our environment in the, in the new york office and our culture and just kind of the buzz and the energy it's it's a lot of fun to yeah. have them there and, uh, and and we're developing them elsewhere in the European region, in Latin America, Canada, um, Asia. You know, it's it's uh, very much a part of our business model. Yeah. Uh, Frank, there's um, some changes afoot at DeVries, which is an IPG agency. Is this the first signs of Andy Polanski sort of making his mark in his new role at the constituency management group, which kind of is the umbrella org, isn't it, for, for the PR firms? Well, it's uh, some of the first signs. So uh, DeVries is merging with the former Golan conflict shop Canvas Blue. Uh, and as part of that, the global CEO of DeVries, Heidi Hovland, is uh, going to step aside at the end of the year. And the agency is going to be managed by regional MDs who are going to report up into the CMG unit, which, of course, was just taken over by Andy Polanski. So, uh, so yeah, changes there. Yeah, and Weber has also done some changes. Gail Hyman has um, shuffled her team around there. That's right. And Stacey Bernstein is the new uh, general manager in Boston. And Michael Wayman is the new general manager in New York. Both used to be EVPs. And I'm forgetting the person who's gone over to CMG as part of that as well. And I'm putting you on the spot here. And I don't have the answer for you, so <laughs> okay. sorry about that. But that was a detail in that yeah. story that I noticed. Yeah, interesting stuff to see. be interesting to see what Andy Polanski does there, actually. And I'm sure he's got some other uh, ideas uh, in mind. He's always um, on the go and always always moving forward. So he's uh, he's a good um, – it's going to be very interesting to see what he does there. Um, and uh, IP, staying with IPG, they've won an interesting piece of business, uh, Covered California. That's a – cross-agency win. I yeah, think. and that's a real, that's one of the state accounts that I think is really closely watched because California is such a big state, obviously. And uh, what Covered California is, is it's basically their healthcare exchange that was created by the Affordable Care Act. Uh, and so the firms have to work on driving enrollment uh, to get people to essentially sign up for healthcare plans. So uh, three IPG shops are going to be handling it. It's, it's Weber, Shanwick, Golan, and the Axis Agency has a big budget of uh, $2.5 million a year, plus uh, some potential extensions. And the account used to be with Ogilvy for uh, a couple of years, I and it was that. recognized at the PR Week Awards a couple of years That's ago. That's right, too, so. I remember. Axis is their West Coast shop, isn't it? Armando Azaloza runs that. Um shop out there so that, that that's the california connection i guess yeah interesting stuff nice win there um and salesforce our 
colleague Sean Zanecki broke an interesting story about a pitch going on over there. That's right. Let's just say that uh, word is getting around that Salesforce uh, is about to start a review. Xeno Group is the incumbent there. They consolidated a lot of the work uh, starting with corporate communications in 2017. You were uh, involved in that one, Anna Marie? Well, <laughs> I, w I will say that I was, uh, I was just at the Economic Club of D.C. Um, to see Mark Benioff uh, be interviewed by David oh, Rubenstein. Right. Yeah, which was great. He's got a new book out. Yeah, so that's right. Really remarkable. Um, it, it was well, it was remarkable because Benioff basically interviewed himself. I think Rubenstein <laughs> asked <laughs> one question, and he talked for an hour, and it was like fascinating. Just every well, single sentence. Gary was, Vaynerchuk yeah, vibe going on. <laughs> totally. I, I remember that's interviewing great. Gary on stage, and that was a similar pro. You just sort of set him off, and off he goes, and uh, you, you can't really get a word in. But uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, fascinating business that they've uh, created there. Um, what about the whole business of pitching and new business? You know, it takes up so much energy, doesn't it? And it's so, it can be so joyful when you win one or retain one, but you can also be so downhearted when you think you've put your best foot forward and you don't win. And sometimes those things are not even in your control. Right. How do you, you've seen both sides of it, both the client side and the agency side. How are you, what's your attitude to that? Do you like pitching? Is it, do you get a buzz out of that? I, I kind of do. <laughs> I, I always did. But I think it's really important to have a strong methodology. You have to be able to qualify the pitches well, select your, you know, what you participate in very thoughtfully. Um, at H&K, we've been working on standardizing our pitch methodology. Um, Sam Lithgow's been leading that, actually. And it's it's very visibly had an impact on our ability to convert new business, and, and the data kind of speak for itself in terms of the improvement um, of, of our win rate. Uh, you know, so I just think you have to be disciplined. You have to make good choices. You have to have good methods. And you also have to believe and understand that there are many ways to grow new business, and the organic opportunities are incredibly important. You know, the, it's thing, the best kind of new business, absolutely. Really, isn't it? And the things that come come in because of relationships, and you know, you can swarm those quickly and sometimes convert them without a pitch. Yeah. So uh, it's all hands on deck, you know. <laughs> like do for, like Dow Dupont. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. No. It's. Uh, I remember from my dim and distant times at the agency in the agency world I was in charge of new business and marketing and it was uh, yeah you could work you could work on a whole pitch over Easter or the holiday weekend and then you go and you walk in the room and you're like you just feel the vibe is wrong or, or sometimes you think we mess that up and you win it you know so it's kind of it's 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 not for everyone, I don't think, but um, yeah, it's an it's an important part, and uh, yeah, I think that's an interesting idea. You don't pitch for everything, no, because definitely not. It costs a lot of money in yes. terms of time and resources, and you know sometimes it's 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 could be better spent elsewhere. Couldn't Absolutely, it? yeah. And finishing on pitching, but a different type of pitching, media pitches. What's this story about, Frank? So it's a study by Propel, which uh, is an Israel-based uh, platform company. And um, it found that only one in 65 or 1.5 percent of pitches to journalists are actually successful. Now, there's a it's a wide definition of success. It can be anything from a mention in a story to a whole feature uh, or a whole story. Um, but yeah, it found only 1.5 of them, 1.5 percent of them are successful. And the uh, average person pitching, the average PR pro pitching stories pitches. 111 a month and 40% of the pitches happen on Tuesday. Oh. 
Wow. Fun facts. So. Indeed, and no doubt they've got a platform that can help you yeah. pitch better. Is that the... Uh, that's the uh... that, that seems to be what he's strongly hinting at right there. 1.5% <laughs> seems a little low to it me. Does. I didn't expect an extraordinarily high number there, but 1.5% just it's, feels low. It's how you define it as well. If you're yeah. talking about like spamming out uh, thousands of emails, then that probably yeah. is about right. But what do you, I mean, look, is, is media relations still important? Anna Maria, and if so, what's the best way to do it? You know, journalists always complain, don't they, about PR people? It's very lazy, in my view. But you know, um, you, we've all had pitches from people and thinking, why the hell are they sending this to me? You know, so what? what where are we at with the media relations play in, in terms of PR? Well, to answer your first question, um, absolutely. I mean, as someone who spent half my career as a client, you know, I would just say that the earned uh, component is incredibly important, and that. Uh, clients need experts. Client ne clients need people who are external partners who have line of sight and relationships and creativity and ways of uh, driving, you know, earned the earned portion of um, of communication and and media coverage uh, really, really very effectively. So um, I, that's something that that we we continue to embrace as a as a priority in the in the in the business model. And then you know the, this this debate around you know uh, p the the conversion rate for pitches and what makes a good pitch and it's um you know dressing up kind of that data is interesting to a point but it's kind of just dressing up just a perennial issue that's been a part of my career ever since it started you know yeah. decades ago you know so it's um you know you have to it's not unlike pitching business like it's about the quality it's about you know in terms of good, making good choices, targets, the development of the stories, and understanding what is going to uh, really uh, build a quality story, and having those components in place. You know, as a client, <clears throat> I can think that when I when I've proactively pitched, personally, taken on certain media relationships and proactively pitched, I can't think of a single time that I that something that I really wanted to do, you know, failed to find a home. Yeah. Just because of the quality of the content. Yeah, yeah. You, you can't just smile and dial, get a, a list, and sort of parrot a, a, a prepared line, can you? You've got to build, work on the relationships, etc. Actually, it was an interesting data point in our communications bellwether survey, which came out recently. We did that with Boston University, talking about media relations, and we asked clients and agency folk who who was kind of leading on media relations and 70% of agencies said they were and 69% of clients said they were. So it was like <laughs> the data comes out and you're like, what the hell, is, how can that be correct? Yeah. But I think what we took from it was that the clients are keeping certain key media relations in-house, but they are using agencies for um, not more transactional, but you know, some of the more where they need boots on the ground. And uh, so you've got to keep some of those key relationships in-house as well. So it's both. It is, is the answer to that, yeah. I support that. Yes, indeed. All right. Well, um, I wanted to shout out some new friends, actually, at PRSA Richmond in Virginia, because I was there yesterday speaking to the local chapter. Fantastic lunch there. And um, there was about a couple of hundred people there. It was terrific to visit. First time I'd been to Virginia, actually. Really? So I ticked a new state off my list. And as I told them there, I, was, I used to live in Richmond in southeast, southwest London. I married um, someone from Richmond in Kentucky, and I was now visiting Richmond, Virginia. So I'm collecting the Richmonds, and uh, it was a great place, actually, if you've never been there. Lovely, lovely city. And uh, like many cities, it's growing, 
And there's a lot, a lot of um, interesting business around there, and a lot of um, education and health. So it's a fascinating environment. I'm so. a William and Mary graduate. So Are you? I'm down there. I'm on a board there, and I, I've, I'm down there through Richmond like three or four times a year. Yeah, it was just such a nice place, right? And I was walking around the streets on Tuesday night. And it was deserted. I was like, wow, this is... Uh... And everyone said, well, this is rush hour. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> this is a bit different than New York, but it's kind of refreshing as well. Great beer town as well and food. So uh, two things that I'm into, as you can probably tell. Um, all right. Well, thanks, Anna Maria. That was great uh, to have you on the show. Really interesting to find out uh, more about what you're planning. Frank? Good luck again Thank on you. Sunday. Um, we'll all be rooting for you. Thank and you. Um, No pressure at all, huh? Well, <laughs> um, just a couple of customer service announcements. We've got our Hall of Fame big uh, dinner on December the 9th. It's going to be a great night. We uh, hand out to six new honorees and um, a, a real celebration of the industry and some legends within it, uh, including Andy Polanski, actually, who we were talking about earlier. And our Global Awards, they're out for entries at the moment. You've got until January the 16th for your first deadline, and the end of January is the final deadline, and the um, show will be in London on uh, May the 19th, to so put that in your on your calendar. We've had a busy couple of weeks at PR Week, so we had our 40 Under 40 dinner last week, fantastic fun had there. Great to see the future leaders, and uh, our PR Decoded conference was a couple of weeks ago, so check out all the content from those events on the website, some great stuff going down. But that's all we've got time for. We'll see you next time on the PR Week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the PR Week. To find more episodes, visit prweek.com.